epistle lesson this morning is changed from your bulletin. Apologies from the preacher. Oftentimes much happens between Thursday and Sunday in the preparation of a sermon. We are in Romans 8 this morning, reading verses, beginning in verse 18 and reading through verse 30. Listen carefully to God's word. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the, revel for the revealing of the sons of God. But creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we confess this morning that it is in your light that we have and see and know light, that your word is true. And so we come upon this Pentecost Sunday, the Sunday in which we remember the giving of your spirit, and we ask that your spirit would lead us into truth and guide us into freedom and liberty. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. If you have your Bible available or your bulletin, you may turn to Psalm 120. You'll note that this is a departure from 1 Peter. That is intentional. It was planned. We attempted to get as far as we could into 1 Peter prior to beginning our summer psalm series, as is our custom. And we have 15 weeks in front of us as we will work through Psalms 120 through 134. These are classically known as the Psalms of ascent. But since completing seminary in 2003, <laughs> Melissa and I have lived away from both sides of our family, and so it's been customary for us to take several weeks in the summer to visit them, traveling up and down the East Coast. This, of course, involves packing up the family vehicle and then enduring the torments of the family road trip. We figured out certain tricks along the way, how to make those type things better, how to survive all the intricacies of traveling, especially with young children. 
But when my boys were young, there was a predictable, almost liturgical cadence to our trip. We would get out on the road and then the inevitable question would be asked. Are we there? <laughs> sometimes we were close. And sometimes it was asked before we had exited the city limits. You knew that it was going to be a particularly bad day at that point. It is the most depressing of questions for a weary family hitting the road. And prior to the advent of portable televisions, personal devices, and game systems, these things are all now installed in cars, I hear, parents had to manage their children, and also their own personal sanity, by coming up with things to do. Perhaps it was listening to the radio, if you had a radio in your car, or perhaps it was playing a game. But for ancient Israel, there were no such modern conveniences, and something had to be developed, because three times a year, the Israelites were to take a sojourn or pilgrimage to the city of Jerusalem. We even know Jesus as a boy was taken by his parents to the festivals. These were the crowning festivals that marked the year and shaped Israel's sense of time by how they worshipped and engaged with God. And so the entire nation was to come from east and west and north and south. Millions of pilgrims streaming towards the city. And parents had to manage themselves and their children. And that somewhat explains what we have in front of us. These 15 songs that have been collected over time and then put together as songs of ascent. This was speaking of the ascent towards Jerusalem. They were traveling songs. They were for the pilgrimage. And what we find in this small hymn book is a collection, though, not just of things to kill time for children, but rather in these hymns and poems, what we have is a collection of ancient wisdom about the journey to Zion, the walk with God. And so we have virtues enshrined and different spiritual practices. Wisdom is being taught. So they're carefully crafted hymns and poems that captured elements, of, elements and aspects of our life with God. They were designed to take us ever deeper into our pilgrimage with Him. This is what these psalms are about. And so we're going to take a close look at them individually, one by one this summer, taking us into the early fall, 15 weeks that we have. And we begin this morning with Psalm 120. As we set out on this pilgrimage, on this ascent, it's important to ask this question. Where does the Christian pilgrimage actually begin? And there's one place that Psalm 120 identifies for us. That our pilgrimage begins as we become dissatisfied with the way things are around us. This is where the Christian pilgrimage as we walk with God begins. It begins with a sense of dissatisfaction. Follow with me in verse 5. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach, and that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Now these are two place names that are foreign to us. They are regions. And actually in the Bible, they refer to literal places that were way distant from Israel. One was in the northwest in modern-day Turkey, and one was in the south in the Arabian Peninsula. 
And so it's unlikely that the psalmist actually lived in both of these locations. But in Scripture, what we find is both of these locations were associated with warrior people who were warlike. They did not share faith in Israel's God. And so it was a convenient metaphor for talking about being dislocated and disenfranchised to be exiled into something that was unpleasant. And so this is what is captured here in the psalm, is a dissatisfaction with the world around us. Woe to me that I dwell, that I sojourn in Meshach, and that I dwell in the tents of Kedar. He then identifies, though, the source of the dissatisfaction. This dissatisfaction is related to lying lips and a deceitful tongue in verse 2. That there was a lack of truth on the people's lips. He is, of course, most likely speaking about his own immediate surroundings in Israel, even inside of God's covenant people, that in the speech of the people around him, there was a lack of integrity. There was a lack of congruence between what they professed and then how they spoke. There were lies and deceit. One of the practical questions for us this morning is how do we experience these lies and this deceit. Of course, the first place that we think of experiencing such lies and deceit is in our personal interactions with other people, where people simply don't tell us the truth. And sometimes they do this out of self-protection to protect their own image. Sometimes they do it because they have a particular agenda. But whatever the case, it's wearying and tiring when someone tells us one thing and then we find out something else later on. Their yes is not yes and their no is not no. And it leads to distrust and cynicism and the breakdown of relationship. This, of course, is inside the psalmist's concern that this is the world in which we lived in. There's relational betrayal. But then there's also something broader that can happen inside the, worlds of, inside the world of lies and deceit. There can be things like corporate and institutional lies. That is where we have a corporation that's in service of the bottom line and then free to spin and manipulate the truth in order to gain what they want. Or perhaps we have things like fake news, things used by politicians in service of their power. We live in a culture that's full of different reports that we find out mislead and misguide. We see this on all of the corporate and institutional levels in our society. It's another way that lies and deceit penetrate into our daily existence. But then there is a final way that perhaps is the backdrop for all the ways that we experience deceit. And that is that when we talk about the lie, what is the lie inside of all of God's good creation? And the lie is anything that points us away from finding life in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul lays it out very clearly for us in Ephesians 4. You'll find it in verse 25, where he contrasts two things. The truth, which is speaking of life in Jesus Christ, and the falsehood or the lie that's speaking about any other way of life. That any time we have a promise of meaning and purpose and fulfillment and satisfaction that points us to some other source than Jesus. Paul calls this the lie. 
It is the lie that we are tempted to buy into, that we are assaulted with, that we are bombarded with every day, that we build our life on something beyond Jesus. It presents itself to us in many ways. We can find it in religions and philosophies that point to another source of life, another origin, another destiny. We can find it in more simple places like commercials and advertisements. And then we can find it in the seemingly harmless forms in places like Instagram and Pinterest. We find it in all kinds of places where we're pointed to find meaning and satisfaction in something outside of Jesus. And these seemingly innocuous things around us can become very dangerous when we're trying to find the satisfaction in another place. And we've met the lie. And that's the context in which we sojourn. Complicated relationships, complicated institutions, and then a complicated world that doesn't line up with the grace of God and teaches us to find life in other places. It's exhausting. And there's one appropriate response. Woe to me. Woe to me. Because that's the world inside which I live. And we must see and appreciate the context in which we sojourn. Our Meshach, our Kedar. We must appreciate it for what it is. If we look to it to provide something that it cannot provide, it will fail us over and over and we will experience its exhaustion. But what the intent of the psalm is, is to bring us into a particular type of dissatisfaction in which we see the lying tongues and the deceitful speech. We see all the false promises where we see the betrayal and the emptiness of it all and we become dissatisfied and begin to move away from it. The practical question that then guides us is what does this dissatisfaction look like? Is it a mere outcry? A cynical distrust in which we distance ourselves from everything? Or is there a constructive way for you and for me to express that dissatisfaction in which we bring that to voice and then live through it? There's two movements that the psalm leads us into as to how we can constructively express this dissatisfaction. The first is that we must call upon God. It's the simplest of instruction. In verse 1, In my distress I called to the Lord, and He answered me. And this was the call. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips and a deceitful tongue. That this is the instruction when we recognize we live in a world full of lies and deceit. What are we to do? Call on God. That He is the one who can deliver us from the jeopardy that we're in. This is the simple instruction for us. But yet sometimes we are so slow to take up that basic move of calling to God for help. Several years ago, I was pastoring a young woman whose spouse was dealing with addiction issues. And so she had enrolled herself in a group addiction therapy of, of, of spouses who were dealing with these conditions. And while enrolled in the program, she was invited to do a certain exercise. And she was invited into a room where she was given a blindfold along with 15 or 16 other people. 
And then they were told to put on their blindfolds, and the game, the exercise, was then explained. There was a rope maze in front of them. And they were to navigate their way through the maze, blindfolded. And there was one person walking the maze who they could ask one question of at a time in order to help them get out of the maze. Everyone set off, some aggressively, some not so aggressively, attempting to find their way through the rope maze. Eventually, after a few minutes, it was announced, Amy has exited the maze. Everyone was happy. They had hope. But then as most were still inside the maze, it was announced again that someone else and someone else had exited the maze. And so then a certain sense of despair began to set in. Were they ever going to get out? There were ropes around and they couldn't see. And they were asking questions of the guy, but then not getting answers that were helpful. They were not escaping the maze. Finally, my friend went to the guy and said, can you help me? And then she heard it. Jenny has escaped the maze. The point of the entire exercise was to encourage people to ask for help. It's very simple. That to escape the maze is to call on God, is to ask for help. And friends, we're slow to do it. We're slow to do it because of fear. We don't know what it's going to mean. What kind of help might somebody offer us? And we're slow to do it because of our pride. We don't want anyone to think lesser of us. But it's the simple motion of saying no to the world around us and saying yes to God, to cry out to Him for help. Deliver me, O Lord. Words to pray by, the simplest of words, but to call out to God in the midst of the complicated world in which we live. Now the second motion that the psalm teaches us, though, not only are we to call on God, but we're also to grieve the, the way things are in the world around us. And this grief is a coin that has two flip sides to it. First, we grieve by lamenting the broken world in which we live. This is what is captured in verses 5 through 7, is grief and lament. The Psalms, of course, are filled with it. But this opening psalm on these songs of ascent is teaching us to grieve and to lament. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshek, that I dwell among the tents of Kadar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Lament, grief, that the world is the way that it is. That things are busted and broken. That the world lines itself up against God and His way. And this is the right posture for the Christian. It's not to blame and accuse, but it's to take all the pain of the world and all of its rebellion and all our own personal rebellion before God and lament it. To put it there and to bring it to Him. Flannery O'Connor, in her short story, Greenleaf, one of my favorites that she wrote, and every time I quote Flannery O'Connor, somebody inevitably goes and buys the short stories and then comes back to me very puzzled. 
saying they're the weirdest, strangest things they've ever read. They are, but they're fantastic. But read Greenleaf. But in Greenleaf, she describes a woman, Mrs. Greenleaf, who was a poor tenant farmer. She rented land from a Mrs. May. And Mrs. May came upon Mrs. Greenleaf and had utter disrespect for her. And O'Connor describes the scene in this way, that Mrs. Greenleaf every day would take the newspapers that she found left over, and she would clip out the stories of tragedy and sadness. She clipped out the stories about women who had been raped, criminals who had escaped prison, children who had died, train wrecks, the death of the young, divorces. She took all the sadness of the world, she clipped out these articles, the obituaries, and then she went out to a private place in the woods and she knelt down and buried them and spent an hour grieving and lamenting all the sadness that was contained in those clippings. And friends, this is an appropriate Christian response. Mrs. May comes upon her and doesn't know what to think, calls her some choice words, but Mrs. Greenleaf, poor, simple woman, knew more of God than Mrs. May could ever imagine. Because this is the instinct of the Christian heart. When we look upon the grief of the world and the sadness, and all the things that afflict it, and all of its brokenness, all of its injustice, is to lament, is to grieve, not just the things that happen to us, but the things as it just happens, as it goes on. This is the first side of the coin that we lament life in a broken world. But the second side of the coin is that we grieve also by asking God to make things right. You'll notice that this psalm has particularly strong language in verses 3 and 4. Many people are uncomfortable with it. What shall be given to you? He's speaking to God actually about those who have assaulted him with lies and deceit. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. And so the psalmist speaks to God about his enemies, those who have betrayed him, those who have lied, those who have deceived him. And he even imagines out loud what kind of punishment may be helpful the glowing coals of the broom tree, those were the hottest coals known in ancient Israel. And so the psalmist, in his abhorrence of his adversary, proposes the punishment of arrows and hot coals. However, what's so important for us to note is that the psalmist feels the freedom to call upon God to deliver him and to make it right. He proposes a solution. But what has already happened in that moment, as he brings his rage, as he brings his disappointment, as he brings his dissatisfaction with the world around him, is that he has entrusted himself to God. He's already entrusted himself to God in his wisdom and in his good care, that God would deliver him from his distress, and that God would also take care of those who were opposed to him. That in the time of his exile, while he's living in a world that is compromised and polluted by sin, that he knows it's above his pay grade to exercise justice. Friends, we're not competent to do that. We're not competent to exercise justice. 
God alone is the one who can do that right and do it well. And so as we bring our lament and our grief and we ask God to make things right, propose the solution that you might want, but entrust yourself to God, knowing that He will bring about the perfect and timely solution, that He has the wisdom and care to do so. And so we have this freedom to bring all of our anger and our disappointment to God. And many people never find the words in their prayers to express themselves to God in that way. Many other people never know the jeopardy and distress in which their lives are actually lived. But when we recognize that distress and we see all the hurt and the pain that afflicts us, we can come to God honestly with that. We can give voice to it. But then the vengeance doesn't overtake us. We don't become revengeful and angry people because we release it into God's concern and into God's care. And the Christian is convinced that God's care and God's concern will right all the wrongs. Because we know that in the cross of Jesus, He has already done that on our behalf in a way that we could never fathom or understand. That the one righteous person in the history of the world who had no sin was willing to lay down his own life and he bore our sins in his body. That we could be forgiven. That we might be rectified with God. That we might stand and be labeled righteous in front of him. God solved the problem of injustice and of sin in a way that we could never completely understand when we look to faith in Jesus. And then we know the promise of hope of a world restored. The psalmist says he's for peace, but they are for war. That condition of war is not going to endure. There will be a day, the prophet Isaiah tells us, that war will be no more. That the weapons of warfare will be, built into, will be bent into productive instruments. That God's world will flourish and be renewed. That things will be as they were intended to be, and that's the great hope that sits in front of the Christian and compels them forward. In the midst of all pain and lament and grief, in all of our dissatisfaction and disenchantment, we're not just simply over the world. We're holding out hope for the world. That God will one day heal this place. That God will one day heal you. That God will one day heal your neighborly relations. That God will heal us in our corporate institutions. And God will free the world from its lies. Its deceit that points us to find life in another place. Yes, God will heal that. And so in the midst of all your lament, in the midst of the grief and the burdens, the worry and the woe that you carry, you know that your God attends to you. And so let's go to Him in prayer.